Delighted to have with us this evening to preach the word as we close out our missions conference, our dear friend, Dr. Craig Shepard, who's come all the way, as you probably know, from Indonesia. Dr. Shepard is the executive director of the Center for Reformed Theology in Jakarta, Indonesia, and also an assistant professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. I'm also told he's a Kansas Jayhawks fan, and I have a sneaking suspicion that Pastor Carl timed this just right. As you didn't notice, he had an extra glow to himself this morning as his Sooners defeated the Jayhawks on the gridiron yesterday. Nonetheless, it's our great pleasure to have Dr. Shepard here with us this weekend, and especially this evening, to preach to us the text we just read there from 2 Timothy. Well, thank you. Good evening. It's good to be with you. You know, when I was corresponding with uh, Pastor Carl, he said, you know, you really only have one obligation on Saturday, and that is to watch the OUKU football game with me. And, of course, he knows that that OU and KU is always going to be a very one-sided affair, and the Jayhawks did not disappoint. Um, I noticed he did not invite me to preach during basketball season. (laughs) But I have a a sweet relationship with, with Pastor Carl. I told him, When I got to town, you know, he and I have gone on a number of walks recently in Jakarta. Uh, How fun it is in the advent of technology that I can walk through the streets of Jakarta and listen to Carl preaching here. And he told me that, yeah, you're probably just listening to know what you needed to correct when you came. And I said, no, sir, I only have one evening to preach, and there's not enough time to do that. But it is good to be with you. You know, this morning was a life-changing morning for my wife and I. Absolutely life-changing. The worship was sweet and right in the middle of worship, our first grandson, first grandchild was born. So how fun it was to... We didn't check our phones during the service, don't worry. But immediately after worship, we saw that our, our grandson had been born. Lisa, where are you? Everybody say hello, Grandma, to my precious wife. It's a wild thing to be married to a grandma. Tonight I want to look at a wonderful passage of scripture. And I have the the joy of being both a missionary and a professor of theology. And sometimes those don't often go together. I love being a very missiological professor of theology and a very theological professor of missions. And I love working in the field of missions where I'm able to live out our faith in a foreign culture, taking the theology that we profess to a part of the world that does not have it. You think about the country where we serve, the largest Muslim country in the world, 260 million people there and 240 million of those are Muslim. We have a lot of Buddhists, a lot of Hindus, and certainly a number of evangelical believers as well, but I have the treat very often of preaching to hundreds and hundreds of people. And you'd never think in a, in a country that is the largest Muslim country in the world that on Tuesdays when I preach in chapel, I'm preaching to 4,000 people. And on Sundays uh, when I'm preaching for the, the, the student chapel on campus, we have 2,500 people there and another 300 across the quad. You'd never think of that in a Muslim country, but that's where we get to, to serve. We have had the joy of beginning five new churches, training pastors, and seeing these young churches begin to grow. 
begin to disciple their people. And one of the most important things that we want to really begin to implant in these new churches is a heart and a love for missions. Because if you really want to know the heart of the Lord, you have to know the, if you want to have a heart for the Lord, you have to know the heart of the Lord. And the scriptures are filled with the picture of the heart of the Lord for the lost. And that comes out in our passage tonight. A number of years ago, uh, my fourth son and I were driving down to Sunset Beach. You may be familiar with that area right on the border of South Carolina and North Carolina on the coast. And as we're driving down there, he said, Dad, what was God doing before he created the world? That's a great question from a 16-year-old. You might think that a 16-year-old son would say in that nice time with dad and dad alone driving down to the coast, Dad, could you, could you explain girls to me? I think he realized that that was an unanswerable question, and so he asked something simple like, what was God doing before the creation of the world? But when you start looking at Scripture There really is not much in God's word about what he was doing before creation. In fact, as I've studied the word and keep looking for what the answer to that question might be, I've only come across seven passages that really give us much detail. And tonight what I want to do is look just for a moment at, in a sense, time before time. I know that's language-wise a little bit of of a strange statement, but I want to look at what the scriptures reveal about the time before God created the world. And then I want you to see how that is absolutely essentially tied to missions. And so I want to begin tonight looking at time before time. Psalm 90 verse 2 is the very first passage in scripture that I have found that talks about time before time. We read it just a moment ago, but Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or Ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. From everlasting to everlasting you are God. What's the picture? What was God doing before time? It says that he was existing. It's a picture of the eternality of God that in the time before time, God has always been God. He has always existed. He is without beginning or end. He's always been. And yet... That alone still doesn't satisfy the question that we might wonder about what God was doing before time. The next time we see this question addressed a little bit is not until the New Testament when we get into the book of John. And John is, re- is recording here for us the high priestly prayer. Jesus is about to go to the cross and Jesus, as our high priest, goes before the the Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, and he prays, first of all, for all that's about to happen, but he prays for everybody, for his disciples, and for all who will eventually come to faith in Christ. And he gives us a little bit more of a picture of time before time and what God was doing. John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here's the picture, what what God was doing before time. We see this, this picture of the Father and the Son enjoying everlasting glory together. And we know from the context of John 14, 15, 16, the the Holy Spirit is a part of this as well. So we have this picture of our Trinitarian God 
before the creation of the world, mutually enjoying the glory of the Godhead. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. But here's the point. God has always existed. God existed as Trinity. And God existed in wonderful, glorious, unimaginable glory. But he gives us more in the very same passage. John 17, verse 24. Later in the high priestly prayers, he prays for those who would eventually, in the future, even trust Christ. He says, Father... I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because, listen to this, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Isn't that amazing picture of all the things that the Lord could tell us about what he was doing before the creation of the world? This is what he reveals. Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. What has been going on for all of eternity, all eternity past is the Father loving the Son. And again, we know from other passages, and the Son loving the Father. This eternal love within the Godhead. So the first picture we have of what was going on before the fall, the Lord was existing, existing in wonderful Trinitarian glory, and the Father was loving the Son. One verse earlier in John 17, verse 23, there's a little bit of hint of something else that the Lord was doing before the creation of the world. I and them, and you and me, Father, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. There's a hint of a picture here that before the creation of the world, even as the Father is loving the Son, he was loving us. It's an amazing picture when you think of the very infrequency in which the Lord tells us what's going on before the creation. He says, this is something I want you to know, that the Father was loving the Son, and this little hint that he was loving us too, that picture comes to much more full glory in Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul captures it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? From all eternity past, in that amazing, unimaginable time, we have this picture of him choosing us. It says, in love he predestined us through Jesus Christ. So here's the picture. God who has always existed, existing in that Trinitarian glory, the Father loving the Son and loving us in the Son. There is where we begin to see the beginning and the foundation of missions. We see another wonderful picture of this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, where it says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world to be our Lamb, to be the spotless Lamb of, of God who, who does wash away our sins. And then the final 
wonderful picture we see of this is in Revelation chapter 13. And here again we hear John's word. And this is the word as he captures the words of the Lord. All who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Do you hear what he's saying? That before the foundation of the world, the father was loving the son. The father was loving us in the son, through the son. And he was writing our names in the Lamb's book of life. That's an amazing picture. That is all the scriptures really reveal about what was going on before the creation of the world. The Father loving the Son. The Father loving us in the Son. To such a degree that he was writing our names in the Lamb's book of life. Isn't that an amazing picture? How many of you woke up today, woke up this morning and doubted the Father's love for the Son. Probably none of you. I don't know if there's been a day in my life where I thought, I don't think the Father loves the Son. Then neither should you doubt his love for you. Because before the foundation of the world, he was loving you in the Son. That's the wonderful picture of, of and from Scripture about this time before time. And I hope you begin to see now the foundation of missions. The, the, the picture here, even from, from John 17, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. What does he say? You sent me. The Father is sending the Son. Why does he send the Son? To seek and to save the lost, to do as he said in 1 Peter 1, to be that Lamb of God, to be the, the, the precious blood of the Lamb that, that washes away our sin. So the Father is sending the Son. There's the very first action, if you will, of missions. That's the foundation of missions. That wonderful, glorious Trinitarian God who has not only had that mutual indwelling love within the Godhead, but has set that love upon us and written our names in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. Amazing picture. An amazing foundation for missions. We go to the world and we go to our neighbors with this amazing news, this this offer of the gospel because we proclaim that they too can know this amazing love of our Heavenly Father by simply trusting in Christ and becoming a, a disciple of Christ, a learner of our great Savior. That's what Paul is, is bringing out in our passage today. If you look at verses 8 and 9, 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9, we, we'll spend the rest of our time now really focusing in on our passage for this evening Paul says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. You can hear the echoes of Ephesians 1 there. Not because of our works, echoes of Ephesians 2, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Isn't that an amazing picture? You're not saved by works, but you're saved by his grace, 
which he gave us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Isn't that an amazing picture? What I want to do tonight is I want to look at these amazing truths, and I want to to think about them in light of missions. I'm going to, I learned this morning I need to have three points, and so um, I spent all afternoon rewriting this to get my three points right. I was going to have four, but, you know, all the time this morning was used on other things, I guess. Here's the first principle from our passage. The Trinitarian plan of missions is rooted in eternity past. There is a a Trinitarian plan for missions, and that plan is absolutely rooted in eternity past. Missions did not begin with William Carey in, in 1793 when he snuck off the boat just off the coast of Calcutta and took a rowboat in the darkness of night and, and entered Calcutta. You know the, the amazing things that William Carey did in India, eventually earning rightfully that, that title of the father of modern missions, but the reality is he may be the father of modern missions, but he's not the father of missions. We've seen that the father of missions was at work before the creation of the world. The foundation of of missions, it it didn't begin with the Apostle Paul. We heard this morning the Apostle Paul was probably the the greatest missionary in the history of missiondom. I don't know what that word is, but the greatest missionary. And yet he wasn't the greatest missionary. Our great, wonderful Trinitarian God is the greatest missionary. The Father loving the Son, loving us in the Son, sending the Son. The Son gloriously, joyfully willing to come to endure the cross, despising its shame. And then rising from the dead and ascending and now interceding for us before God in much the same way he did in the high priestly prayer, continuously. That's our Trinitarian God's plan of missions begun, first of all, in eternity past. It didn't even begin with the Great Commission, right, the, to sending us to, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. It didn't begin with the Great Commission. It began with what we call the, the Covenant of Redemption, or if you're a seminary student here tonight, the Pactum Salutis, that, that pact that was made within the Trinitarian Godhead to seek and to save the lost those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. Missions is a wonderful thing. And as we see in verse 9, that God was in Christ Jesus doing this work, giving us grace even before the ages began. It began in eternity past when God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in loving unity set their love upon us. Not because of works that we, are, we have done, but because simply by his mercy and grace. That gives a whole different flavor to missions, doesn't it? And actually it gives us a wonderful new fresh look on the Great Commission. To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of that Trinitarian God who has loved them since before the foundation of the world. We, we baptize in the name of the Trinity because it is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, since before the foundation of the world, has been loving you, giving you grace, even when you are yet just a wonderful spark 
in the mind of God. But in our passage, there is another principle I want to highlight. And that is this, that the Trinitarian victory of missions, the Trinitarian victory of missions is secured in human history at the cross of Christ. In other words, there was this Trinitarian plan which was begun in in eternity and in time before time. But we see from our passage as well that there's also a very specific point in time, inside of creation, where the very victory of missions is secured at the cross by Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 10. The Lord's purpose and grace now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Do you hear the the unpacking of all the various elements of the gospel here? It's rooted in the incarnation and the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is where the the victory, the, the very foundation of missions is. There is a point in time in the Certainly when the eternal plan of God, the eternal purposes of God, the eternal promises of God come into the very reality of time and space in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You hear it in verse 10. The Lord appeared. There's the incarnation. The Lord abolished death. There's the cross. In the cross of Christ, death was put to death. We also see that the Lord brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. There's the resurrection that Christ and his victory over the grave, he brings, he comes to life, his, comes back to life. The, the humanity of Christ is raised from the dead, and all who are united with Christ are raised with him. Right? He was delivered over for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians, That therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, we keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Why? That union with Christ that happens because Christ has appeared, he's abolished death, and he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In Romans chapter 8, we see the Apostle Paul, perhaps the Apostle Paul's greatest exposition on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, just one verse in that whole lengthy section, he says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. What do you see there? You see the very working of the Holy Spirit, the very one who raised the Son, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, says he's also going to give life to your mortal bodies. Not just your soul's. Even your mortal bodies will be raised immortal. That's the gospel. That's the Trinitarian gospel. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternity past, in time and space, entering in to save us, redeem us, raise us up, and seat us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. We see the plan of missions. We see the victory of missions. We also see a a third principle here tonight. That is, it's the Trinitarian application. It's the, the working out of his eternal plan. The Trinitarian application of missions occurs in the individual life, in the individual soul, when he hears and when he comes to know Jesus Christ by faith. 
there's a point in time where the eternal plan of God from eternity past and the working of Christ in time and space when Christ came, lived, died, and rose from the dead. And now we see the, the glorious consummation of that when the individual believer hears the gospel and responds in faith by God's grace to newness of life. Perhaps you've seen in someone else's life that moment. Maybe you've heard someone share their testimony of when they were transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Maybe you remember that time in your own life where you know the Lord has just completely changed your heart. A number of years ago, my wife and a friend named Denise were in Hungary, about an hour and a half from Budapest on Lake Balaton. They were sharing Christ with people around that very, very large lake. And they approached a a group of young gals. And they began talking to them about the things of the Lord. Some were more interested than others. One of them, my wife will say, did not seem particularly as interested as maybe the others. Fast forward two years, we're sitting in our home, and we get a letter in the mail, an international letter postmarked from Hungary, It was a very short letter from one of the young women that was there, the one that was not particularly interested that day. She writes, My dear Lisa, you remember that you may remember the time you were in Hungary at Lake Balaton. There we met. Denise was there too. I know that it was not accidentally that you could talk to me about our God, Jesus Christ. I'd like to say thank you in the name of Jesus, for that was the first time I could meet God's real love who proclaims his gospel. By now I've given all my life to Jesus, and there are no words how I love him. His blessing and his peace be on you and all sisters and brothers. Love, Andi. There's a picture at one point in time she she hears the gospel, and yet at some point after that, by the working, by the power of the Holy Spirit, her her heart was regenerated to, to receive the things that had been proclaimed to her. It's a, it's a picture of what happens in Acts 16. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul enters Philippi and they gathered down by the river and there's a lady there. Her name was, was Lydia. She was a, a seller of purple clothing from Thyatira. And the Apostle Paul shares Christ with the group there. And the book of Acts captures this. One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. In other words, she had some spiritual interest, but yet she had not come to know Jesus Christ. The passage continues, The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Here's Paul presenting the outward call of the gospel, an invitation, even a command to, to trust in Jesus Christ and know newness of life. And at that moment there there's also the inward call of the gospel where the the holy spirit himself regenerates her heart and the heart does what it's always been created to do and that is believe the moment of of spiritual life blown into the soul of this woman her heart does what god has always created to do and that is believe it's an amazing picture titus 3 5 he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
That's what our wonderful God does. The Father loves the Son. And the Father loves us in the Son. The Father sends the Son and Jesus comes. He lives, he dies, he rises from the dead, he ascends to heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes and brings regeneration to our hearts of stones. What's amazing to think is that before the creation of the world, before there were stones, the Lord is already planning to remove our hearts of stone. And that comes to that full glorious consummation when the Spirit comes and renews our hearts. Let me give you some thoughts for application this evening. The first is simply this. Live in light of God's eternal love for you. If you know Jesus Christ tonight, you can know that your Heavenly Father has set his love upon you since before the foundation of the world. He's written your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. He's called you to himself. and He's purchased you through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he foreknew as our precious Lamb before the foundation of the world. Live in light of who you are. You are his. Second is simply this. This Trinitarian gospel has been entrusted to his people. We have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's given to us. And we're called to be guardians, faithful guardians of that treasure of the gospel. He's he's given it to you. He's implanted that treasure in you. And he's called you to be faithful with that gospel. The question is then, What will you do with what the Lord has entrusted to you? What will you do with that entrusted gospel as individual believers? What will you do with that treasure which he has placed in you as a church? What will we do with that treasure as the church of Jesus Christ around the world and through the ages? Will we be faithful with what he has entrusted to us? Basically, what he's calling us to do is from being entrusted with the gospel to be those who are entrusting the gospel to others. Verse 14, he gives a command. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the treasure entrusted to you. You're not going to do it alone. By the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, Guard the treasure. Guard the treasure. Guard it jealously. Guard it joyously. He's given you the riches of eternity. How do we guard it? We guard that which he has entrusted to us. It's going to sound strange by giving it away. We guard that which he has entrusted to us by giving it away. By entrusting it to others. In the heart of Kentucky is a a mysterious place. We all have heard of it. Most of us probably have never seen it. It's one of the greatest kept secrets in many ways in our country, and that's Fort Knox. An amazing place. All of America's gold is, is kept in the vaults of Fort Knox. Few people have ever seen it. There's something like 147.3 million ounces of gold there arranged in 27-pound gold bars. 
The value, today's market value, is somewhere around $270 billion in gold bricks. It's considered the most secure place in all of our country. An amazing structure that they say cannot be breached by explosives. It can't be opened with blowtorches. You can't drill through the doors. It's a combination lock that owns it, but nobody has the complete combination. Aspects of the combination are entrusted to multiple different people who only know, for example, one number. No one person knows it all, and even those who know those numbers are kept under the highest of security. In fact, when Secretary Munchen and Senator Mitch McConnell went to Fort Knox just a few years ago, it was the first time that they had had visitors there in the vault in more than 40 years. That's an amazing place. The, the door, the vault door, is 21 inches thick and weighs more than 20 tons. That is an amazing structure. It's an amazingly safe and secure guarded treasure. And that is not what we are called to do and be. We are called to be those who take the treasure of the gospel and we, we open the, the vault wide. We invite people to come and to taste and to see. We entrust it to faithful men, right? What you have heard and seen in me, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Three times in this passage, the Apostle Paul talks about that which is entrusted. He says, entrusted to faithful men. That's our calling, to, to open the doors wide, to proclaim the gospel. What safer place for the gospel of Jesus Christ than in the hearts of men that are sealed by the Holy Spirit? Take the gospel, proclaim it, and trust that the Lord will by his Holy Spirit take our outward proclamation of the gospel and pair it with the inward call of the Spirit and, and change a life for eternity because of what he has determined in eternity past. Amazing picture. We who have been entrusted are called to entrust it to others. That's the foundation of missions. The, the call of missions is to be entrusting the gospel. The call of missions is to take and proclaim the eternal and everlasting love of God for us. Not because of what we have done, not because of any good work we have done, but by his mercy and grace. And we know it's by his mercy and grace because God wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men will be able to teach others also. We guard the treasure by giving it away. We guard the treasure by opening the doors wide. We, we, we guard it, if you will, by taking those golden bricks and putting them on catapults and sending them to the world. The safest place is in the hearts of men. We who have been entrusted now must be about that ministry of entrusting. How will you be a part of that? Giving, going, praying, sending, 
We all have such key roles in that ministry as the Lord takes us from being entrusted with the gospel to those who are now entrusting the gospel and onward. Our God is faithful. His love has been set upon you since before the foundation of the world. If you know Jesus Christ, then you, by his word, have that assurance that that love is yours. We've been crucified with Christ. It's not we who live, but Christ who lives in us. In the life we live now in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and delivered himself up for us. That's the glorious gospel. And may we be faithful with the entrusted treasure and faithful with entrusting to treasure in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know the tendencies of our heart. We can tend to think that, Lord, maybe there's something that we have done to earn the treasure we've been given. And yet, Lord, you destroy that notion by reminding us that this has been since before the foundation of the world. Lord, it's humbling to think that you have written our names in the Lamb's Book of Life since eternity past. Lord, because of that, would you help us to walk with the joy of truly being children of God? Those of us who have trusted and received Jesus Christ, may we walk in the joy of our salvation. Lord, would you also help us to to battle against the temptation of our flesh, which is to take the treasure we have and to, to hide it under a bushel, Lord, would you give us boldness to proclaim the gospel, to to take the treasure which you have entrusted us and and by the power of your spirit to, to guard the treasure by entrusting it. Lord, may that become the the passion and, and zeal of our lives. Lord, may we be faithful disciples of Christ. May we be faithful ambassadors for Christ. For we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.